Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of this channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Melissa Michelson and Dr. Brian Harrison, authors of Transforming Prejudice, Identity, Fear, and Transgender Rights, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. Dr. Melissa Michelson is a professor of political science at Menlo College, and Dr. Brian Harrison is a lecturer at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota and founder and president of Voters for Equality, an organization dedicated to mobilizing LGBT voters and allies to encourage engagement in political life. Dr. Michelson and Dr. Harrison, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, so could you begin the interview by saying just a couple of words about yourself? Okay, so this is the part where we don't know whose turn it is. So I'll go first. Sounds good. Um, So I, as... Christina said, I'm a professor at Menlo College in California. I'm originally from California, but I roamed all over the country to get my education, including getting my PhD at Yale and then teaching for some time in the Midwest. And now I teach at this cute little school in California. And I, when it's not a pandemic, I get to ride my bike to work and Uh, live this beautiful California life. But I've also been committed ever since my undergraduate education to social justice. And so a a theme of all of my scholarship really is how we can increase equality and justice for marginalized members of the community. And of course, that very much includes LGBTQ folks. Great. And I am Brian Harrison. Uh, Thank you, Christina, for having us on the podcast. I am a Midwesterner, and I've spent most of my life here in the, in the Midwest, including um, my PhD from Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, where I also spent a few years teaching before moving to the Twin Cities area. And now I'm a lecturer at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. And I also spend uh, a considerable amount of time with the organization that you mentioned called Voters for Equality that is primarily social media based that gives LGBTQ people and allies concrete ways to be involved in politics and things that they can do in their everyday lives to be more engaged and to actually uh, enact social change rather than just sort of opine about it on social media. Other than that, I have two seven-year-olds, so I've been playing the role of first grade teacher for the last few weeks during the pandemic. And when I'm not doing that, um, I also am working on a novel and I am writing a musical. So I tend to gravitate toward writing even in stressful times, I guess. Sure, sure. Yeah, I love how engaged you all are um, inside the classroom and outside of the classroom. Um, and I'm interested in how did you two come to write Transforming Prejudice and what inspired you to write this book? Melissa I think to I tell met. that story. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love to tell the story about how we met, but yep. why don't you tell you, the story? No, you, you do it better. Go ahead. 
<laughs> All right. So as you can see, we're both still kind of delighted about how we met. So many years ago, when Brian was a graduate student, I was invited to Northwestern to give a talk. And Brian picked me up at the airport. And because he knew he was picking me up at the airport, he read up about me and then used his opportunity of having me in the car with him to start talking to me about my work and had I ever thought about doing work on LGBT folks. And I was like, wow, this, you know, this guy's got some ideas. This sounds awesome. Let's think about what we can do. And although his original idea didn't pan out, he had connections with One Iowa, which is an LGBT advocacy organization in Iowa, where Brian's from. And he convinced them to do an experiment with us on whether coming out during a fundraising call led to increased donations to One Iowa. So we did this experiment with One Iowa, and two very important things happened. One is that the piece got published in Political Behavior, which was fantastic and really uh, an an endorsement of the work that it placed in a general political science journal. But then also was entertaining because it turned out that coming out during the phone call was harmful to their fundraising effort. And so we taught them something that was super important. They thought they were following best practices and maximizing how much money they could make. And we were able to help them because we could say, no, actually what the data show is that you shouldn't do this You'll raise more money if you don't. So we could both publish and contribute to political science scholarship, but also help and be allies for the LGBTQ community in our work. So at first we focused on issues like marriage equality, because this was before marriage equality was the law. And then starting in 2014, we started turning our attention to transgender rights because that's where the advocacy organizations were going. It was definitely the next frontier in LGBTQ rights. Brian, how did you get interested in transgender issues? Well, I think in graduate school uh, in American politics, political science tends to be more, I say socially conservative, that's not totally fair maybe um, more aware of the separation between advocacy and scholarship. And it always struck me as a little funny because political scientists, I think, are uniquely equipped to interact with practitioners and actual politicians. Um, and so in graduate school, I did no work in LGBTQ rights because I was told not to, that it would be um, sort of outside the scope of political science, that we should leave it to the sociologists and the psychologists. And so my dissertation was on the presidency, which is fine. The presidency is important, too. But um, in the background, Melissa and I were working on these articles, which really were of more interest to me, both personally and professionally. And I was having more success um, publishing with, uh, with Melissa in these sorts of issues. And so when I graduated, um, I decided I don't really want to write on the presidency anymore. I see the need to connect advocacy and um, and the academy a little bit more than the work in the presidency does. And so I decided to switch my focus away from uh, American political institutions and more into public opinion, um, political behavior, 
and what Melissa and I call pracademics, which is the connection between um, academics and sort of on the ground, real world political advocacy. So our first book came out in 2017 with Oxford. And like Melissa said, it focused mostly on marriage equality, a few other LGBTQ rights, but uh, mostly on marriage equality. And uh, by that time, as Melissa said, we had already been thinking about what was next. And it was clear from speaking with the adv advocacy groups that transgender rights was starting to become the focus as marriage equality became closer and closer to reality. So we were well positioned, already having a few articles on transgender rights um, published in academic journals to try to broaden the scope and to come up with our new theory of transforming prejudice to mirror the interest in the advocacy community um, on transgender rights and ways to change attitudes um, and also bringing in the methods, the science and the data um, and bringing them together again in an attempt to sort of bridge the gap between um, political science scholarship and advocacy. So that's really what led us to study these attitudes in the first place. And I think uh, is sort of the niche that this book fills in that gap that, that I just mentioned. Yeah, I agree. It's totally an important issue and um, scholarship is becoming increasingly prevalent, which is great. And I'm really excited to hear that you guys published um, an, uh, an LGBTQ focused article in a generalist journal. That's always an accomplishment um, in fields where these topics are more marginalized. And I know we'll talk about methods as we go in depth um, with some of your experiments that we'll talk about, but just in general, how did you guys come to decide on using experimental methods um, in your book? I think experiments are an important tool that is trendy for a reason. So we've used experiments in our work because while we can learn a lot from observational research and from surveys, experiments are really the best way to determine causality. And so if what we're interested is causing an effect, then we want to be able to pinpoint those causes. So while sometimes we do use surveys, for example, in our new book, we do have a large national survey where we're really just exploring how people in the United States feel about different segments of the LGBTQ community in different parts of their lives. When we're talking about how to transform prejudice, when we're talking about how to reduce discrimination and increase support for transgender people and rights, we really do need to determine causal mechanisms and experiments are the best tool for doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I want to go ahead and jump right into the content of the book because there's so much good stuff here. Um, so just broadly, um, what are some of the common issues that transgender individuals face? There's a lot. Probably the, the biggest issue is just that a lot of folks are fearful of transgender people, are disgusted by transgender people. There's quite a bit of prejudice that people tend to think of transgender people as mentally ill, as predators, as a threat to children. Really just all the worst stereotypes that, are, that were, have been used against other groups, including the gay community for decades, 
but now the focus of those stereotypes tends to be transgender people. And this affects transgender people in their lives and in all aspects of of their everyday experiences. It's walking down the street. It's going to a doctor's office. It's trying to be a voter. It's getting on a bus. It's playing sports. In their everyday lives, transgender people are discriminated against by employers, by neighbors, by landlords. Um, And often that discrimination erupts into violence and homicide. So I think pretty much every transgender person faces some of this discrimination and violence in their lives. It's, it's really just disturbingly widespread. And there, there's plenty of data and surveys of the transgender population that documents those dangers and, and threats that transgender folks face every day. In addition, I'd add uh, research shows that there are all sorts of health outcomes and wellness outcomes, in addition to prejudice that transgender people face. And obviously that can be additive. Um, Transgender people of color have additional challenges. Um, And so we've we've read some of the reports about uh, how transgender people have answered surveys about their well-being in terms of uh, financial well-being, psychological well-being, and just sort of health outcomes. And we know that, um, you know, sort of holding all else equal, transgender people suffer from a whole lot of things that they shouldn't. And I guess the basic start of the book was let's find ways to, to change that, to make that better. We know in particular transgender women of color are particularly vulnerable to homicide. And of the transgender people each year who are murdered, it is overwhelmingly transgender women of color. And that was a motivating factor in writing the book um, to sort of start the conversation in political science about transgender people and implicitly making the point that LGBTQ scholarship does belong in political science. And here are the ways that it does. Here are the way that this falls squarely in public opinion scholarship and political communication scholarship, um, relying on sort of some of the classic theories of both of those disciplines we're implicitly making the point that, no, this isn't a separate thing. This is in the mainstream of scholarship as well. Sure. Yeah, I really appreciated how both of you dedicated your work um, to the transgender women that were murdered in 2019. I thought that was uh, a nice touch to the book. Um, are there specific characteristics or values that uh, people hold that are associated with holding prejudice against trans people? We know that generally speaking, uh, cisgender men hold more um, anti-transgender views than women, all else equal. Um, there are a few other demographic predictors of anti-transgender attitudes. So in addition to gender, we know folks who are more religious in terms of attending religious services more often, and in terms of specific denominations, tend to have more anti-transgender um, views. We know from an ideological standpoint that people who self-identify as conservative or more conservative uh, tend to have these anti-transgender views as well. Um, These are a lot of the same predictors that we see for attitudes toward um, 
GL people and gay, lesbian, and bisexual people, but they're not necessarily the same predictors for GLB people and T people. Um, there are also a few other things like education. The more formal education someone has, um, the more that they have actually interacted with uh, transgender people or if they know a transgender person, they tend to be more supportive of transgender people and rights. Um, these are, of course, generalities. These are just demographic predictors. But these are some general trends that we see in survey data that can predict attitudes. Yeah, sure. And I want to touch on something you just mentioned and you talk about in the book, which is we often hear about rights for LGB, LGB folks, um, yet you note that trans rights are different than um, securing LGB rights. So why are these trans rights different and how are they different? I would say a lot of people don't understand the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. And overall, information and correct information is a big part of the solution to the problem. So um, even among the LGBTQ community, um, there are people who think that the T should not belong in the acronym whatsoever. Um, So it isn't just a, a heterosexual problem. It is a problem across the board. Um, so one element is, um, explaining the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. A lot of people think that there is a gender binary. That's the way they were raised. That's the way society is oriented in a lot of ways. And introducing people to the concept that no, actually there are more than two genders. There is a continuum, um, is a fundamental concept that is very difficult for people to understand. It is upsetting to their worldview. It's one of those sort of truisms that we were taught as kids. Many people were taught as kids. Um, And so reorienting people to that different stance can be really difficult. And that is a very different um, challenge than pointing to, let's say, two men or two women and saying these people love each other. They should be able to engage in a social institution like marriage or quality, or they should raise a family. That is a very different challenge than saying this fundamental truth that you thought you knew all your whole life, that there were two genders. Actually, you know, biologists, psychologists suggest that's not the case. So I think it's a really different, um, I keep saying challenge, but it's a really different worldview. And people came around on marriage equality because they realized that two people who love each other should be able to do this, this institution should be, be able to have equal rights. And it didn't actually change their worldview. But with transgender rights, the idea of being transgender or not having a gender binary in our culture does upset the worldview of a lot of people. And it, it sort of injects a, hey, I have to change my way of thinking in a way that advocating for marriage equality did not. Just to... to maybe restate what Brian said, but in a slightly different way to help emphasize why trans rights are different. A lot of the success of the marriage equality movement was about convincing straight Americans that gay people were just like them, that they fell in love, that they wanted to have lifetime commitments to their partners, and that it was about love. And people could relate to that. And so they became less threatened by same-sex marriage and by gay people because they could understand that. 
they would like to be in love and to have a lifetime commitment through marriage to somebody. And so they can understand why a gay or lesbian person would want to do the same. When you're talking about transgender people, you are asking folks to understand that gender is mutable, that gender is possibly a continuum. And I think for most cis people, that isn't something that they can relate to. As Brian said, they've been taught their whole lives and by everything in popular culture that there are two genders and you are what your external genitalia at birth said you are. And that's just the truth. And so it's harder for folks to get their mind around the fact that trans is a real thing because it actually is threatening to how they understand themselves rather than as with gay and lesbian people being able to see themselves in the members of that other community. Mm -hmm. For sure. I think that's a really nice way of putting it um, because I agree there is a difference and it's hard to relate to something um, that you have heard your whole life and um, like it just gender is so tied to our identity that it it could be hard to relate. Um, And I want to also talk about the research that really shapes this book, which is the nine experiments that you guys conducted. And I like to talk about three here today that cover a range of content and methods. Can you first talk about the journey story experiment? Okay, I want to talk about that one because I did that one with my parents. And so it was kind of adorable. So a lot of the experiments that Brian and I conducted in our book were really done on a dime. We don't have large research budgets. We don't have massive grants. And so the journey story was conducted on Halloween. And just so happens that my parents live on one of those kind of streets that maybe every community has where it's the street on Halloween. And thousands of people go to that street and every house is totally decked out. And my parents have to buy a thousand bags of candy to keep up with the demand. And they usually end up having to close up even before the crowds dissipate. So looking at that as a researcher seeking participants in an experiment, that seemed to be an ideal situation where I could get a fairly random section of folks from San Jose, California. So the survey was on paper and my parents helped me solicit folks to participate in the experiment as they walked down the street. Um, You know, if kids wanted to do it, obviously we said, go find your grown up for us. And we offered folks a $2 Duncan gift card in exchange for participating in the experiment, which was printed on paper. We we randomly gave people, people either Uh, the control version of the survey or the experimental treatment. The control condition just said, here's what transgender means. Here's a picture of the transgender rights symbol. And please answer all of these questions about how you feel about transgender people, how comfortable you are with transgender people, et cetera. And the treatment condition showed a picture of Kimberly Shapley and her daughter and told the journey story. So this is a journey story experiment. Told the journey story of Ms. Shapley and how while she had previously been very religious and in part based on her religious beliefs, did not believe that trans was a real thing, once her daughter 
came out to her as trans, she changed her mind and she realized that her daughter really was transgender that, um, and now she is a supporter of both her daughter and of transgender rights. So uh, half the folks who agreed to take the survey got the control, half got the treatment. And what we found is that folks who were exposed to the journey story were much more likely to say that they felt comfortable with transgender people, were more likely to believe that being trans was something that folks were born with, and were more supportive of transgender rights. So even though it actually was a fairly small experiment with fewer than um, 500 people in it, it was very powerful. And it, sh it showed the power of a journey experiment to give folks the space to reconsider their preconceptions. And I think a nice transition so, to the next experiment we wanted to talk about. So that's the, the journey story experiment. And I wish I could share with you the the picture of my parents um, flagging people down as they walk down the street, trying to get them to conduct the survey um, and doing it in both English and Spanish, reflecting the neighborhood that they live in. And it was really just adorable to have my septuagenarian parents helping do this experiment. And um, I, I want to encourage folks who maybe don't have a lot of money for research to look to these sorts of creative outlets uh, or creative sources of gathering data, because it turns out that with the free labor of my parents and, you know, a fairly small number of $2 Duncan gift cards, we were able to conduct a pretty robust experiment in just one night. I really like that story. That's great. Brian, go ahead. Sorry, I think my internet is getting a little spotty, so um, we'll, blame, we'll blame the pandemic. Um, <laughs> I was going to add is a nice transition into the masculinity um, set of experiments that I think were the second set that you wanted to discuss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think if you look at our theory, one of the most important findings that we came up with was that opposition to transgender rights was often about a person's own identity, not about transgender people at all. And so, as you alluded to, gender is one of the most important identities that many people have. It's one of the strongest, and it's one of the strongest predictors of other attitudes and of uh, behavior. So it seemed like a, a good identity for us to delve into. And in particular, we wanted to look at masculinity and toxic masculinity and to see if that played a role in opposition or potentially support for transgender rights. We relied on the masculine overcompensation thesis, um, which essentially says that um, men are concerned with uh, losing their masculinity in social situations. And they tend to overcompensate um, if they feel as if uh, their masculinity is being threatened in a variety of different ways, ranging from um, heightened homophobia to um, support for silly things like buying, buying sports cars. Um, there's all sorts of ways that, that uh, men for whom masculinity is important to their self-concept want to sort of reclaim that power when they feel as if their masculinity is being threatened. So, uh, so relying on that theory, we uh, replicated a experiment done by Willer and his colleagues. And what they did was they gave uh, a battery of questions to respondents in an experiment. And um, they gave them a false score at the end of that battery. 
And some people got um, a score that indicated that their masculinity was low in terms of the average. And other people um, got a score that their masculinity was about average. So in other words, in one condition, masculinity was threatened. In another way, it was not. In the other condition, it was not. Now, we also did this for women and femininity, but really our hypotheses were more geared toward men and the, the power of masculinity threat. We also had a control condition that um, took a, the big three personality test, which really had nothing to do with masculinity whatsoever. So those were the conditions that we had in that threatening experiment. And what we thought was men um, would be less supportive of transgender or transgender rights when they were made to think that their masculinity was lower than the average man. Uh, and that's consistent with other work that showed that men tended to be more homophobic when their masculinity was threatened. And we wanted to make sure or we wanted to know if that also applied to transgender rights. So essentially what we found was that when men felt that their um, masculinity was being threatened and they said that masculinity was important to them, that was essential to their self-concept, they were significantly less likely to support bathroom access for transgender people to use the bathroom of their choice um, and of their of their gender identity. Um, and that was a, uh, that was particularly true for men for whom they felt um, masculinity was was essential, was important to their self concept. Interestingly, we found that there was really no effect among women, women um, whose femininity was threatened, were slightly less likely to support trans rights, but not in a significant way, and nowhere near the degree to which men were less likely to support. So that was, I think, one of our um, central experiments of the book. We then decided to, to test whether you could bolster someone's gender identity. So rather than threaten it, could you remind people or um, cue people that their masculinity was actually higher than the average and uh, or their femininity was higher than the average, depending on their gender identity? And what we found was that didn't it wasn't as powerful. It didn't work quite as well. Um, so essentially chapter four, looking at gender and masculinity, confirmed a lot of people's beliefs that toxic masculinity can lead to um, less support for transgender people and rights, particularly among those um, for whom masculinity is, is particularly important to their identity. But consistent with a lot of the other literature, um, a corresponding threat to femininity for women really did not have this effect. So in a lot of ways, this was confirming what people would say, well, that's obvious, but we didn't find any other data that show that the uh, masculine overcompensation overcompensation thesis does, in fact, extend so to transphobic So your book's central argument is and then for we suggest, identity reassurance uh, a variety theory. Of ways so to what is identity reassurance theory, to and that, what are the um, key aspects of this theory? Sure. So like I alluded to before, um, we thought that maybe it was less about the transgender person and the onus was not on the transgender person or allies of transgender people to convince others to be supportive. We thought maybe there's something about individual level identity that we could measure and test to see whether there's a, a broader way to increase acceptance and support. And what we determined was um, in a lot of instances when people feel 
um, uh, like a loss to their ego or loss to uh, the the salience or power of one of their own individual identities, that that leads to um, opposition to transgender rights. So we developed the identity reassurance theory in that vein to essentially say, if we can reassure folks that an identity that's important to them is still important, is still valid, uh, is still um, something that they can be assured is not under threat, that that leads to increased self-esteem, which we know uh, increased self, uh, self-esteem self leads to being more open to information. Um, and then finally, that should the, uh, theoretically and logically lead to an increased likelihood of having pro-transgender attitudes and behaviors. So in short, if you can make people feel good about themselves, they're going to be more open to feeling good about outgroups and people with whom they don't identify and in fact may be fearful or uh, fearful of or disgusted by. So that's that's the crux of the theory that we mentioned in chapter two. Um, we have there's um, a variety of underpinnings from political science and psychology to sort of illuminate why the things that I just mentioned are true. Um, but that's sort of the identity reassurance theory in a nutshell. Yeah, Melissa, do you have anything to add? No. Um, I, th- I think, um, as always, Brian is on top of the theory. You know, we each have our, our strengths. And, and one of Brian's strengths is that he's really strong on political science theory and, um, and the role that identities play in, in how we think and believe and act. Sure, sure. Yeah. So in the last um, chapter of your book, you have a section called Transforming the Transforming Prejudice Toolbox. So what are some of the challenges that stand in the way of reducing prejudice towards trans people? And what are some ways that um, we can reduce prejudice towards trans people? Part of the reason we wrote this book was, you know, in addition to contributing to scholarship and expanding political science knowledge. But to go back to the beginning of our conversation, a lot of what motivates us is our desire to be activists and to help push along equality and and justice for all members of our communities. And so a lot of what we want to happen with this book is that folks can take away from the experiments and from the theory ways that they can be allies in their own lives. And this is particularly important for advancing transgender rights because there are so few transgender people. A lot of advances in gay and lesbian rights in the last couple of decades have been a result of straight people realizing that they already know and love gay people. And so they have contact with those folks and they are more able to then make a connection. There aren't a lot of transgender folks in the United States and it's actually often not reasonable to expect them to come out to their friends and coworkers because of the possibility of violence. And so it's really more on all of us who are allies to fight for transgender rights. So we want to give folks these tools to help advance transgender rights. And though that toolbox includes, for example, 
just the basic idea that you have to start the conversation. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's always uncomfortable to talk to folks about politics or about sex. But if we don't talk about it, nothing changes. And so if your mom comes home from work and she's sharing a story at the dinner table about how, oh, it was so scary at work today, this man dressed as a woman came into the ladies' restroom, you can't just let that go. You have to say, wow, mom, why did you feel that way? Uh, why, why were you scared? And then start the conversation and, and hopefully turn it towards, well, you know, that person probably was more scared than you were. And here's why it's important to let people use the restroom of their choice. And here's, you know, here's some more for you to think about and to start that conversation with your mom or your friend or your coworker. Research has shown that part of the reason that gay rights advanced so quickly in the past couple of decades is because marriage equality was such a front page issue and that so many folks were talking about it. So if we want transgender rights to advance, we have to talk about it, even if it's uncomfortable. And when you're having those conversations with people, you can use the tools that we found work through our experiments. You can share a journey story and give a person the space to change their mind because if they understand that other people have changed their minds, it makes it more okay for them to do it, for them to say, okay, I'm reconsidering that it doesn't mean that they're weak or that they don't have true values. It just shows that they're open-minded, that you can appeal to their sense of moral elevation, to their commitment to values like honesty and equality, that you can reassure them that they're a, a good person, that they're a, you know, that this is not a threat to them, uh, that this is more actually about being the person that they want to be, about being their best self. And finally, and also bringing in the evidence from our 2017 book, that it does help if you can bring in elite allies, if you can say, um, these famous people, you know, this celebrity, this politician that you admire, those folks are supporters of transgender rights. That also helps people um, if they see that it's, something that a lot of folks that they know and respect also think that way. So it works if you're saying it because your friends and family members know and respect you and they're going to be more likely to listen to what you have to say. But then there are all these additional tools that you can bring into those conversations to help make the conversation more effective. Yeah, that's that sounds like a, a, a gamut of, of good tools that people can use um, to reduce their prejudice or reduce prejudice of their friends and family members. And I think that it's really powerful. Um, so where should transgender related research go from here? And one quick thing I was going to add. Yeah. Um, it, it also includes a shameless plug for another book that I just had uh, come out with Oxford um, on April 1st. That's called The Change is Going to Come. And it relates to this, this book as well. Um, I think there's widespread lament that our country is in trouble, that people can't talk to each other, that things feel and seem really polarized, and everyone sort of throws up their hands and says, oh, well, I'm going to continue to do the things 
that made us polarized in the first place. And I think Melissa alluded to um, uncomfortable conversations. And I have a chapter in that book, which is what made me think of it. We need to become better at uncomfortable conversations and keeping things respectful and, um, and finding ways to disagree with each other or to confront disagreements with each other in ways that don't alienate people and that actually encourages future dialogue. And so I think one of the, the main takeaways from the book is to try to embrace discomfort in conversations when you can, because it's exactly that embrace or those embraces that can make real change in our closest social circles. Um, and so the, um, the estate of Audre Lorde was really nice to grant us the ability to, to publish a bit of her poem, A Litany for Survival. That's on page 147. And I think it encapsulates this idea really well. Um, she wrote, when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard or welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak. And that's really the gist of the book. Um, it can be uncomfortable. It can be fear inducing to try to encounter transphobic um, statements and people out in the world. And you can't, always, you can't always address things as forcefully as you want to. You need to consider your safety. You need to consider your well-being. But when you do have the privilege to speak, when you do have the ability to uh, push back on things that you think are not embracing justice and equality for all, um, it's these conversations and these tools that we talk about in Chapter 7 that social science tells us works. So when you can engage in these conversations, and to, to get to your question, what can we do uh, in terms of transgender rights in the future? It's to find ways to be more comfortable with discomfort and putting ourselves out there when it's safe and smart and using um, some of these social science tools to push things in a more equitable direction. Um, and so that's what I would recommend in terms of interpersonal communication and um, just day-to-day -day advocacy that each of us um, can do. And like I said, it can be uncomfortable. It can feel strange. Like Melissa said, when you have a family member who says something that you know isn't right, that you know is based on misinformation or disinformation, um, it's much easier to let it slide and just say, okay, well, let's, let's continue to be civil. But that's not where personal growth happens. That's not where persuasion happens. And if you can approach things toward transgender rights or any variety of contentious political issues in the right way and engage people in a way that, you know, brings them together rather than alien, alienates them, we can actually make some significant strides against transphobia and prejudice. And you know, that's really the, the biggest takeaway from the book. For um, transgender scholarship, this book really, we see it as the start. It's certainly not the definitive book. It's certainly not the end. It's just the beginning, particularly in political science scholarship, to look at ways that we can increase equity and equality. And I think future research has a whole bunch of avenues that we identify in the book to take all of our ideas and run with them and to find um, even more causal mechanisms to, to get people to be more uh, persuasive. So we identify some things in chapter seven that we didn't do in the book. So for example, we don't look at multiple identities. We don't look at how black transgender people um, might be different. Um, people may feel differently about them than they do about people who are white and dressed transgender. We don't look um, 
in depth at people's attitudes and how they're different between transgender men and transgender women. There's, um, a, there's a good number of studies that show that people do feel differently, um, but we need to identify ways to speak uh, to these different uh, identity groups differently to be more persuasive. Um, we need to find scalable strategies, things that can be put into media, into advertising, into advertising copy, um, things that work on a large scale because interpersonal communication is terribly important. And like I said, there's a lot that we can do um, just with our social circles and the people that we interact with on a regular basis. But we also need to be mindful of ways to scale it up and to change cultural and societal uh, conversations in addition to interpersonal ones. Yeah, all good things. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time today. And my final question for you is what are both of you working on now or next? Brian and I are actually currently working on two more books. And yesterday he had an idea for a third one. And as usual, I had to say, Brian <laughs> can only write so many books at one time. Um, so one book we're working on is called LGBTQ Lives in America. And that's more of a reference book aimed at high school students. And that's going to be coming out next year. And that book raises 40 different myths or misconceptions about LGBTQ people and then basically uh, myth busts. You know, it, it then says, you know, here's the myth, here's the facts, and here's some more information about it. And so that's not so much original research, but really an important resource for young folks who maybe are looking for some answers that aren't so easy to Google or to ask Siri about. And um, as, we, as we've been writing this book often, we think, okay, you're a kid in the Midwest and uh, you have questions and you can't find what you need on the internet and you can't talk to your parents, um, but this book is gonna be in your school library and you're gonna be able to get the information you need. And so we're finding that really fulfilling, especially when we're thinking about that kid uh, in Idaho or Wisconsin looking for answers. And then the other book, which we're also super excited about is looking at how to reduce discrimination against people living with HIV AIDS. And there, of course, we're moving a little bit beyond our usual focus on LGBTQ folks because many people who live with HIV AIDS are not members of the LGBTQ community. So exploring the ways in which those identities interact and as always ways in which we can give people the tools to reduce discrimination against that community and make sure everybody's treated equally. Brian? Um, yeah, in addition to those two books, which writing a book with Melissa is is lovely, and I want to keep doing it. So that's why I keep saying, hey, there's another idea. There's another idea. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also, like I mentioned, writing a novel, which is way different than anything that I've ever done before, but it is really fun and has nothing to do with LGBTQ rights. So it's a nice, you know, respite from research when I can do it. Um, but yeah, Melissa and I are finishing up the book on myths and myths, myths and myths, easy for me to say myths and misconceptions. And then we're eager to start looking at, as she said, um, 
another segment of the population that is often discriminated against in policy in real life, um, those living with HIV or AIDS. So we are looking forward to new challenges and new ways to decrease um, stigma and increase equity and equality. Those sound like great projects and I'm excited to, to read the next two books that are coming out. Where can listeners find um, both of you online to learn more about your work and your books? Well, of course, we have strong social media presences. <laughs> Folks can follow me at Prof Michelson on Twitter or read more than they really could ever want to know about me at melissamichelson.com. I am on Twitter, Brian F. Harrison, at Brian F. Harrison, obviously. Um, I have a website, brianharrison.net. And we also have uh, fake Facebook pages for both of our books. Our first one, which was called Listen, We Need to Talk from 2017. And the new one, um, Transforming Prejudice, has a Facebook page as well. So if you go to Facebook and type in the titles, you should find them. And we update those with articles and other things of interest that relate to the book topics. And when we say we, we mean Brian does that. Well, yeah, it's true. <laughs> well, Brian. Yeah. Well, great. Again, this has been an interview with Dr. Melissa Michelson and Dr. Brian Harrison, authors of Transforming Prejudice, Identity, Fear, and Transgender Rights. I want to thank you both again for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks so Thanks much so for much, having Christina. us. All right. Take care. <laughs>